Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. This week I spoke with a man named Martin Shaw. He's a mythologist. I'd never met a mythologist before. He's taught at Stanford, continues to teach at Stanford, seemingly. Now and then, he also has a school called schoolofmyth.com um, over in the UK. And he grew up in a ministerial family. His father's a minister. His brother's a minister. And not too long ago, uh, Jesus sort of came roaring into his life right before the pandemic, and nothing has been the same since. And we talked about a number of things in our conversation this week, but he mentioned he has a nephew who is, um, who is um, taking on um, going into the ministry in the Roman Catholic Church. And he, he mentioned he was reading the Gospel of Mark with his nephew, and he, he, he was just amazed he said you know jesus is just um roaring through this thing meaning the gospel of mark and i thought boy i don't know if i could have put it any better jesus is just um, coming into this story and we've been talking about it it just upsetting things casting out demons healing lepers uh healing the sick going out into the the world of chaos and and just owning this um this coming of the kingdom. And it happens in the Gospel of Mark so powerfully and so succinctly and so compactly. Jesus is in some ways a hero, but it's a very different hero than the kinds of heroes you often find in mythology or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, or Hollywood. Hollywood superheroes are always killing and smashing and destroying and showing these great feats of strength, sort of like Thor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe when they borrow a, um, they borrow a god from mythology and put him right into the movies. And this is just so different from Jesus. Now, I would imagine that the first century Judeans would have loved to have Thor come down on their side and wield his hammer and destroy Roman legions and send them packing. This is, this is exactly what they want. And, and Jesus is, is roaring through this thing, but it's, it's not like that. And now, before you sort of swap out, give your allegiance to Thor, bear in mind that you know Thor is good at smashing and killing and destroying, but... After that, what does his kingdom look like? Can, can, can he do anything beyond that? Whereas Jesus, it's, well, we're going to have to talk about that. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So Jesus quite clearly is, is living in Capernaum. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, of course, for, for many Protestants, they will hear that preach the word. And um, it, it sort of picks up this word logos that you find at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now, now people's natural reaction to the inbreaking of the kingdom as seen through Jesus' healings and exorcisms have put the people into a fervor. They're, they're fascinated by this. They want to see more. It's it's sort of like people are winning lotter people are getting winning lottery tickets all around them and and when are they going to get theirs and they absolutely can't get enough of it again most people want to generate this around their mission 
and their issue or their idol leader, but, but Jesus has been resisting it. And so then he's speaking the word to them. He's speaking the logos to them. And, and right away, you just have to pause and think, well, well why would Mark use that word and, and, and have it like that? Well, suddenly again, it conjures up the beginning of the gospel of Mark. The word became flesh and dwelt among them. And it conjures up the beginning of the book of Genesis, where, where God speaks order into, um, speaks creation into being and brings um, habitable order and a good world by organizing and dividing the world there in Genesis 1. And, and Jesus is doing that, and, and they're listening. But you almost get the sense that they're captivated by it, they're, they're, they're drawn to it, but can they really understand it? And, and now this word logos is, is a very deep word culturally. Um, in my online circles, there's all sort of in, sorts of interest in this word logos because of Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke. It, it means, it's a difficult word and sometimes, sometimes it can mean something like intelligibility, the thread that runs through reality, an interpretive thread. And, and people sense it as authority. And of course, seeing all of these, excuse me, all of these miracles around them, they, they, they don't quite know what to do with it. Some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this story has all sorts of strange in it. You would think that, well, Jesus is in his house, and um, they just pulled the roof up. I mean, no wonder Jesus is running from the crowds. This has to be just absolute chaos. But they pulled the roof up, dropped this man in. I'm sure they were packed into the house, and so they had to make room for him. And what is noted is that Jesus saw their faith. And so then you have to ask, well, what 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 do we mean by faith here? Now, on one hand, their confidence that if they could only get in front of him, then Jesus would do what they've known and seen him do, which is heal their friend. And, you know, it sort of reminds me of the story in the book of Numbers where um, there are snakes in the camp. God sends snakes and then and then they cry out to the Lord, and instead of taking away the snakes, he puts up a bronze, he tells Moses to put up a bronze serpent so that after they get bit, they look on the serpent and they live. Now, now again, most of us would probably say, I, um, I, I, why don't you just get rid of the snakes? I'd rather not be bitten. But that's not how the story goes. They just don't buy they just don't die when they're bitten. So, so they drop this man in, and quite clearly he's a paralytic. And obviously in that world, that means he can't work with his body. He's, he's probably begging on the street. His entire life is disrupted and derailed. And it's like the most obvious thing is to heal him. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Is, 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 is that what we came for? What's the connection between the sin and the paralysis? And last week we had demon possession in there and, and lepers and son, your sins are forgiven. 
That's sort of like, oh, don't worry. Look at this thing and the snakes won't kill you. Now, Howard Bush, who um, is in our men's group, it, it, we were we were just finished the book of Exodus together, and, and he mentioned this story, and he said, how could Jesus forgive the sins before he died on the cross? And it's just kind of one of these, so one of these sentences, one of these questions that just make you say, hmm, how could this work? Now, the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, and you just, just have to get the sense that everybody just busts into Jesus' house and, and sits down and listens and watches, and no wonder he goes out to lonely places because he can't get any peace anywhere. And so not only are adoring fans all over the place, but teachers of the law are sitting there and watching and thinking and trying to figure it out. They're probably a little upset that he's sort of the star in the Capernaum synagogue, and, and so they're watching. And then this strange thing happens and, and, and make rather an obvious comment. For, for their culture and their time and their religion. Why does this fellow talk like this? I mean, that's one thing you should be able to, you should be saying about Jesus almost every time he opens his mouth in the Gospels. Why, why, why does he talk like this? What is going on? He's blaspheming. Who can for, forgive sins but God alone? And of course, that's theologically correct. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what this, um, what this was and what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? It, clearly, Jesus is begging everyone to see him, but they're all seeing him in the wrong way. And so now, which is easier to say this to a paralyzed man? And, and you almost think Jesus was thinking three moves ahead of them and, well, why would he say your sins are forgiven to this guy when clearly they're just looking, you know, it's the most obvious healing miracle you can think of. So which is easier to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all, which then leads everyone to say, to think the unthinkable. What has Jesus, who has Jesus just said that he is? Now, the son of man figure comes from Daniel chapter seven, and he's this, he's this, he's this person that comes and is given an eternal kingdom. And has Jesus blasphemed? Well, I guess it's only blasphemy if it isn't true. Now, the crowd, they're not sitting there working their theological abacus. They're just thrilled. <laughs> they couldn't be happier. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, this isn't Thor smashing Romans. This is Jesus coming into the house and his miracles are both so stark and also so subtly telling. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the sea. I'm going to translate the NIV on my own. The sea and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Now here it's not speaking the word, the logos to them. Now it's teaching them. And you almost, now my friend Jacob said, wait till you get to the Sea of Galilee. Because Jacob, my, my Jewish friend, very much wants to take me to Israel. And I very much want to go. And actually we were going to go this, we are talking about having a conference there this year. But with everything in Israel, it all got canceled. But. It's, yes, it's, it's an, it might not be, the size of the body of water is not important here. The important thing is the chaos. The important thing is the symbolism, how it works in the story. So a large crowd again is following him, and this time he teaches them. Before he was showing them the word and you can you can sort of sense that in that whole situation with the paralytic and now he's applying showing guiding and probably they're listening and and as with as so often we experience when we read these passages on one hand okay i i i get the words i hear what he's saying i have a sense of it but i have a sense that this goes so much deeper than i can tell Or did they just receive it because they wanted to see the show? The crowd is so fickle here in the Galilee that we find in the Gospels. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now last, last week or two weeks ago, we saw Jesus calling these fishermen, these, these men that go out into the sea of chaos and, and, and bring sustenance for the, for the people. And now... Levi is somebody who navigates a different kind of chaos. He's navigating the chaos that the Romans and their clients have brought into this world. And part of that chaos, whereas the disciples take fish out of the sea, Levi is taking money. <laughs> he's taking, he's, they're kind of doing the opposite of the fishermen. They're taking the sustenance out of the, out of the Galilean people and sending it to the clients or even all the way to Rome. And Levi is taxing the fishermen. Now, we all know how sort of we feel about the tax man. And, and we have taxation with representation. And you all know how Americans feel about no taxation without representation. Now... This person, someone might categorize as a tool of oppression. And Jesus says, you, come with me and learn my ways. So you've got these fishermen over here who have been taxed, and then you've got Levi who's been taxing them. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you one community. Now, we saw the leper, and we saw Peter's sick mother-in-law, and in some ways, a tax collector can be unclean like a leper. He's always dealing with Gentiles. He's a middleman. He's, he's, he's part of the occupation in some ways. His, he benefits from the status quo kingdom that everybody imagines a true son of Israel will resist. And he collaborates with the sort of people who Simon Bar Kokhba, who we mentioned last week, and others sought to overthrow. He and his friends are unclean, they're sinners, they're enemies of God. 
Well, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Because remember, this eating thing is really important. Part of the reason you don't eat with Gentiles is because they, they don't serve kosher food. And I, I mean that in both senses. And, and he's there with all of his friends. Well, who would be his friends? Well, the other kinds of people that, that, service, that, that service Gentiles and Romans and Galilee of the nations, there's all these people who have sort of moved into it. Think of it like a suburb around Sacramento where people from the Bay Area and people from China and people from the Middle East and people from Africa and, you know, every nation of the world coming into Sacramento and they're all in the Galilee. These are not the kinds of people that someone who is careful about cleanliness would be with. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. His disciples are there too. Jesus is bringing them all down. When the teachers of the law who were, who were Pharisees, because the Pharisees were, they were fighting their own culture war, scrupulous about these things. This is how to resist the Romans. Maybe we can't resist them with swords, and maybe that's not even a good strategy, but we'll resist them with our dietary laws, and we'll resist them with our Sabbath observance, and we'll resist them with our religion. In some ways, they were they were sort of the the evangelical culture wars of warriors of their day who wouldn't go to, you know, you're not going to go to certain kind of movies, and you're not going to partake in certain things, and you're going to be very scrupulous. And again, these are not bad things. But seeing Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors they asked the, 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 the question just like in, in Jesus' house with the paralytic why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors and now Jesus responds to them again on hearing this Jesus said to them it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners now this is such a subtly perfect answer Jesus hasn't necessarily undermined their culture war, but he sidesteps in and says, that's not what I'm doing. You say these people are the problem. The only way you have to deal with these people who are the problem is by ostracizing them. Does that help them? Are they not also the sheep scattered on a hillside that Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about? Aren't I to go to them? How do you answer that? Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. It's, again, this is, the, this is the practice. John's disciples, this is disciples of John the Baptist. This, this is the one that made the way in the desert. This is the one that... That, that said, the end is near and everybody get right. And so they're fasting because the end is near. And the Pharisees are fasting because they're, they're different from the feasting Romans and, and tax collectors who would eat with such people. They're being very scrupulous. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus, aren't you supposed to be another one of these religious factions in this patchwork of religious factions? that is resisting the Romans and on the side of God's holy land and God's chosen people. Jesus, what is your program? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Well, well Jesus, 
What are you saying about yourself? They cannot so long as they have them with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and on that day they will fast. What do you mean he'll be taken away? Thor, you know, Thor, you know, Thor's supposed to smash and win, not be taken away. Jesus is roaring through the gospel of Mark, and, and nobody can make sense of him. And he's, I mean, eventually he's going to overturn tables, but he's doing it right now. But none of the tables that anybody th would think would need to be overturned. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the son of the king, looking to wed. Is Israel the bride? Is it the church? Now is the time for feasting. There'll be times of mourning and fasting. Jesus will be taken from them. No one sews a patch of unsunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making its tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they will pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, Jesus is clearly the new wine, and the old wineskins are bursting, and he's, in a sense, bursting them. Will the disciples make new wineskins? Is that how this will go? Jesus is breaking things open in all sorts of new and uncomfortable and seemingly uncontrollable ways. And, and, and now, some are a little happy, but... Are they happy for the right reasons in the right ways? The truth is, we don't know what we want. We're inconsistent and fickle. And we don't know what we need. We, 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 we think we need and we want all these things over there. Well, the problem is clearly the Romans. But really? If you took the Romans away, would that be a problem? The Maccabees kicked out the Greeks. Was, was, did the kingdom of God come when the Maccabees kicked out the Greeks? Or did everyone just keep squabbling with each other and play all of their same petty games? And, 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 and that didn't, that wasn't, that wasn't even good enough to keep out the Romans. They let the Romans in. We want a problem fixer, but do you have any idea what the problem is? Jesus scrambles the assumptions of the scholars, and he gives joy to sinners, but he's not a libertine. The crowds are clueless and hungry for amusement and winning. The leaders are cautious, confused by the orthodoxy that should give them vision, but blinds them to the Son of Man. The disciples are hapless and unreliable. Jesus will alone disarm the powers underneath the status quo kingdom that both the elites and the commoners are wedded to. I started out by talking with Martin Shaw, and, well, I'm posting this on a Saturday, and I'll preach it on a Sunday, so the video won't be out yet, a few little pits of it, but his story is the story of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus came into his life and threw everything all, up, all upside down. In, in some ways... You know, he, he, he's, so, he's so happy and blessed that it happened, but, but the cost, the chaos, all that's come. And that's so much Jesus. 
He was sort of a prodigal son, now the most famous Christian in a family of Christians. Jesus can't be domesticated. He can't be systematized. He can't be analyzed. Well, you can analyze him, but you're never going to exhaust him or get to the bottom. He's always more. And when you ask him into your life, on, on one hand, it's such a strange thing. On one hand, he'll give you a happiness and a peace and a blessedness you could have never known. On the other hand, he's, he'll... He'll turn things over. C.S. Lewis talked about that when he becomes a Christian. He thought, well, Jesus will just do a little, he'll just move the furniture around and bring in the carpet cleaners and paint a bit. And no, he's knocking down walls and he's adding additions and he's doing things in your life that you never asked him to, but he's not going to stop because he's making your yours, making you his and he's, oh, I really messed that up. Um, you have made him yours, and he is making you his. He comes to be worshipped. He's the son of man. Believed. Believe who he says he is. Obeyed. Followed. The whole way. No turning back. Jesus is not the kind of man you can simply ignore. Amen.